0: Hey guys and welcome back to the solo podcast. This is solo number 20. I hope all of you guys are very well and good and I am back today after last week's being completely crazy last week's sort of Thursday, which is my normal podcast recording day being absolutely mental, a little bit mental for a few reasons in which I'll explain in a little bit. Obviously, I'm an update on myself, but yeah, body power weekend just to cover that was fantastic. So if any of you guys that obviously watch the podcast, listen to the podcast, or follow on the member site, follow me on Instagram, whatever, if any of you guys came up and said hi, I massively appreciate that. It was just a pleasure to see a lot of you and awesome to have chats that was just so meaningful. Like they're amazing for me in the sense that I know that what I'm putting out is taking you all further towards your goals which is just exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. These podcasts are there to help you guys. These podcasts are there to move you forwards, create better individuals, and give you more progression in whatever you're doing. So I'm super happy that that's all paying off. And yeah, fantastic. So amazing weekend. Very, very busy. Very tiring. I'm still regaining my voice back from, from the weekend itself. But it was fantastic and yeah, lovely to see so many people and great to spend the, the weekend on the stand at A List as well. I have to thank them as always. It's great people and they look after me and Danny really, really well. So it's just fantastic to be a part of their company. In terms of an update on me, so yeah, last week was a bit of an interesting one. So essentially what happened was training pull on Tuesday and I felt a little off for the days leading into that session and then after that session I just literally just could not could not chill out like I couldn't come down after the session at all felt like my heart was just racing incredibly fast and I couldn't for the life of me try and control my heart rate which I usually can of course your heart rate gets elevated when you train it's normal but I couldn't manage to relax or bring it down and my appetite I couldn't finish my food I couldn't do anything I just had to lie in bed so I laid in bed for like an hour and then I sort of said to Danny I was like no like this is like this is not normal I've got to go and get this sort of checked because because when it's something as serious as your heart you take it very seriously so we we ended up going to A&E which I really didn't want to do so I I waited for as long as I really could until I had to go and yeah we went and my heart rate was as expected elevated it wasn't crazy crazy high it wasn't dangerous high it wasn't like they had to sort of chuck me into an operating table or anything like that uh, it wasn't as ridiculous as people were thinking it was it really wasn't at all it was just you have to be precautious in these in these situations so I had to go and get it double checked of course I did so got it double checked they ran a few tests they ran some blood work They all came back okay but they brought me back in for a couple of other tests the day after so I spent the majority of Wednesday in the hospital doing checks which was not that fun to be honest when I already had a lot of work on and therefore my stress levels was just continuing to climb to be honest because I couldn't relax about the fact that I was getting behind on work and then I thought about getting behind on like the body power work that I had to do. Yeah it was just a bit of a bit of a stressful period of time which obviously didn't allow me to really recover from the actual impact on myself of being there and doing that and you know usually it would like take me a couple of days at least to come down off of that but it took me a good week to start to feel normal again which is kind of scary for me like I don't I didn't like that at all and over those days with the stress I probably felt way worse than I ever felt during prep put it that way like just way worse, like mentally, than I did in during even a contest prep. So, yeah, it was just a little bit of a knock for me, to be honest, because I'm just not used to having anything go wrong. Uh, so to Danny, like I'm, I'm usually just bulletproof. Usually just like do whatever, push to whatever amounts that I want to do, do my work, train. You know, can survive on basically like pushing my body really hard. But my body just didn't, didn't want to keep up with me. There were quite a few other variables that were in play, that were just like not great in terms of the fact that I was dehydrated. It's also a little sunburn as well and took pre-workout. And on top of that, just like just so many things like piled up on top of each other that probably caused that issue. So I'm just glad to be feeling myself, but it did take a good few days for me to feel back to normal again. Just to get basically heart rate down a baseline and the goals moving forward for me realistically guys are like I'm not going to diet I'm not going to do a mini cut or anything like that I don't think I need to I don't think it's anything to do with body weight I don't think it's anything realistically to do with my fatigue management within training it's more so within my fatigue management when it comes to work stresses um, so I've just realized that I need to allow myself some days where I just do kind of a little less and have some days where I'm pretty quiet so I'm in the process of freeing up some days to make sure and short ensure, ensure that I have some days where I'm I'm much quieter in terms of work and to be honest Danny has been just amazing with regards to being there for me and helping me out not to be soppy but she is just probably the greatest addition to my life that I've had in a long long time and yeah i I really, really, really do appreciate her so much. So she's been super helpful with regards to keeping me mentally on track because, trust me, when something goes wrong and it affects my ability to train, I am not a happy camper because I love training so much. And when I get scared like that and I think the worst is going to happen, this, this, this and that, one of the tests is going to come back bad, etc., etc. And I was just a bit of a mess, to be honest first time in a long time that i've been that upset uh, i was really really upset those those couple of days because i was like something out of my control essentially and when something goes out of your control you feel at a loss i hate i hate that so much i hate feeling like something is not in my control i just do not like it whatsoever so i'm sure a lot of you guys can relate i'm sure there's a lot of things that have happened in your lives that have been out of your control and it sucks dick so I'm going to do everything I can to not let that happen again. You know, when it comes to stress management, I'm going to manage that as best as possible. I'm going to implement cardiovascular work. So right now I'm going to do some post-workout and some on rest days. I'm going to do it as efficiently as I possibly can because I want to create that immediate improvement in fitness. So an improvement in my resting heart rate, an improvement in general fitness. I already feel a lot better adding some in already, and I've only taken it very, very easy. So it should only get better and better and better as I move forwards, which is the positive sign. And it's something that, again, I've learned. It's a lesson. You know, there's always something that we can take from having experiences, whether they're good or bad. Obviously, this one not being great, but at least it's an experience that can move me forwards and give me something to work on. So, yeah, anyway that's pretty much me other than that i'm back into normal training just really trying to be cautious when it comes to auto regulating a few things so yesterday's leg session was pretty low volume and also leaving a few in the tank on most things and just basically easing myself in and then by next week i should be pretty much all back to normal and i highly doubt that it'll happen again because i'll just manage things so much better than i have been doing so that's that Right, so moving into the questions. So first question is about deciding your class. So like what class should you enter? And what are some of the the things that we can look for when it comes to deciding on a class? So whether it's shape, symmetry, balance, structure, proportions, muscularity, whatever we need to decide on, how do we make that decision? So when it comes to the classes that obviously we've got in men's classes, so we've got primarily in... The natural bodybuilding scene we have either men's physique or bodybuilding, so those are the ones that I'm going to talk about. So with men's physique, it's it's a given, like whether you're got a men's physique physique or not. Your determining factors of this are, in my opinion, your waist to shoulder to shoulder ratio. Like if you've got fantastic width to both, like either side to your so delt to delt, that width. That capacity between, or those, that area, surface area between your delta, delt, doesn't necessarily. This is the thing. This is why I'm trying to explain it in a bit of a different way. Doesn't mean you have huge delts. It just means that that genetically, from a structure element, the width at top is there. That's the main thing that you want. So you want that width up top. You also want that very, very small waist, so you're creating crazy tapers. So when you hit that side pose, for anyone on the video, you're just seeing me hit an MPD pose for the first time in my life. But yeah, so when you hit that side pose, you've got that really, really cool taper. Another thing is the cleanness of your abdominals in your midsection. I know this sounds like a weird word, cleanness, but it is a real thing. So how well structured are your abdominals. Some of the best MPD athletes have very, very lovely, symmetrical, blocky abs. These are, again, unfortunately, very genetically determined finally you are unfortunately so marked on your face so right now I'd be placing dead fucking last in a men's physique show with the way I'm looking so I (laughs) I would also place not so highly when I'm lean because I look like 10 years old I do think I look a little bit better a little bit more attractive when I'm lean but nevertheless I don't think it would be the class for me in terms of number one I'd have shit abs for the side poses because, like most people, I have a slightly, uh, my rib cage is not directly central. Well, it is because it has to be, but it, it's in terms of where one rib cage or one part of my rib cage sticks out. So I have this side here. It's why I don't hit an abs and thigh on this side. I hit it on this side because my midsection is a lot cleaner on this side. So I'd only be able to hit like MPD shots on one side, which doesn't work. You need to be symmetrical, very balanced, very proportional. Very aesthetically looking as well. I think that favors things. My client Connor, he's probably listening to this. He's a lovely looking kid. No homo. He's a lovely looking kid and he suits the class down to the ground, in my opinion. When he's older, if he doesn't want to do bodybuilding, he will make an amazing men's physique athlete. Just needs more muscle in the and the upper body and more density when he diets down. But he'll do amazing because of the way that he looks, which is you know a benefit. It's a good thing. So Yeah, that's my perspective on deciding a class. And again, you've got to consider obviously your lower body. So if you have a really lagging lower body, then perhaps you need to look down the route of doing MPD. But if you haven't got the upper body that suits MPD, then in my opinion, there's no real place for you to do MPD anyway. So you should just wait until you've got then developed enough legs for bodybuilding. Funnily enough, a lot of MPD guys that start doing MPD think they can't do bodybuilding because of their legs. And in reality, they actually have really good legs. They just maybe don't look that good when they're at peak off season body weights, which they never do. You know, your legs will never look that good when you're up in, you know, the higher percentage in body fats because you're going to have more body fat around your hip joints and your knee joints. And they're going to cover up the sweep and the just the general flare that you'd have to your quads if you were lean so just remember that when you start to diet down Cool. So next question is on my check-in process so sort of how do I make it efficient what sort of things do I do in terms of the check-in process for my online clients so obviously I have my online clients fill out documents online using Google Sheets so that's the first thing that they do they fill out those documents they make sure they're all up to date then they answer some questions and they usually do this in the form of either a video or audio some people do fill in the actual check-in documents by just typing them but most people do video or audio they send me across that video i watch it i make notes and then i respond via video feedback as well through screen screencast-o-matic so for any of you online coaches out there get downloading screencast-o-matic and you can level up your services a lot in my opinion so that's the way in which i work with online clients In terms of making it more efficient, I think the way that you could look to make it more efficient is just simply learning what you need to give your clients and learning what your clients need to give you on a really high level. So by that, I mean, if there's unnecessary data or repeating themselves in their check ins or there's something that they just don't need to discuss that they are consistently discussing then just raise it to them like say you know like for example I've had some of my clients that when they're checking in they want to give me so much data that they're like running they're, they're walking me through every single session they've done and I'm like dude like I don't need to know every single session you've done I can read it in your log you know that's why I have your logbook there so there's some things that you just need to like be like that with with your clients and just sort of say like I don't don't need all this data it's great but I don't need it all kind of thing so pick up some of those things with your clients and I think that will help you a lot in terms of just being honest with what you actually need from them, but I don't think I can make mine much more efficient than it currently is without actually just taking away from the quality of the service because the quality of my services is quite, quite closely related to the fact that I'm giving them a video, the fact that I'm giving them, you know, a lot of information in that video too, so I think sometimes we can get caught up in trying to make something so efficient that actually we're drawing away from our ability to make the the actual check-in process what it needs to be, which is quality before efficiency. Obviously, efficiency and quality are, are similar things, but we can't afford to get carried away with trying to make it so efficient that the quality does drop off. Okay, so I think that's what I would say on, on in terms of my check-in process and how to make it potentially more efficient moving forwards for you so next question is on deloading so deloading and the signs of needing a deload so this is quite a long-winded question in terms of how there's a lot of signs there's so many signs that people could need deloads so the first one being usually is a drop off in performance That's like seen across the board. There's a drop-off in performance. Usually, we're going to see the need for a deload at some point. Whether it's within that initial week that we see the drop-off in performance or whether it's later, we're going to see a need for a deload at some point. Okay, so that's a drop-off in performance within your training sessions. Second to that is probably the, the thing I see the most is a slight shift in sleep. So sleep efficiency dropping off. What we tend to see is that Whether it's a usually in most people, it's a difficulty to get to sleep. The reason being is that when we're fatigued, when our stresses are high, our resting heart rate will be elevated. So, our ability to get into a parasympathetic state and obviously recover, but also get into a a very optimal position for sleep is negatively affected by the fact that our resting heart rate is elevated from just being overreached and being overtrained to a degree. So, to basically note that you've got to stay on track with as much of your internal feedback when it comes to sleep so like okay am i get am i getting to sleep as i normally would is there anything else that's impacting my sleep that maybe isn't caused by overreaching or overtraining so like be very analytical when it comes to your understanding of sleep and that will help you with that one the other ones are with relevance to appetite so we could see a shift in appetite sometimes this is up sometimes this is down. So for me in an off-season phase, I would usually see my appetite shift down fairly significantly when I am overreached. So it will be like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm eating well, got a good appetite, can eat all my meals, because I've never really had a huge issue with that. I get to some points where I do definitely reach a bit of a stall in terms of my ability to eat food but for the most part, I'm pretty decent. Like I can eat really, really well. So, and not have any issues with appetite. So, when I start to see my appetite really, really dip, I know that something's up. And this could be obviously to do with stress, but it could also be down to just stress accumulated from training, which can result in obviously being overreached and then needing a deload. So, that's that. Generally, otherwise, within training, is motivation levels can dip. So, if you find that consistently, Usually when you'd be really amped up, really ready, really fired up to go to the gym, you're not anymore. That can obviously play a pretty pivotal role in understanding where fatigue markers are as well. Especially if you're like someone like me who really doesn't ever feel like it's a task to go to the gym and actually just really looks forward to it. If you start feeling like that and you're like dreading the gym, then it's probably a sign that you might need to deload. It's, it's just, it really does catch up with you at some point, And you sometimes just don't know when it's going to occur, but it just come out of the blue. The other one that's one that not a lot of people realize is actually just feeling very anxious. So a lot of the time, like I looked at Dr. Scott's book when he was talking about the symptoms of overreaching. And one of the ones he mentioned was feeling very anxious. So just feeling like very nervous to train. And obviously we know that we're gonna feel nervous sometimes to train in the sense that, excuse me, mm. our logbook's gonna scare us a little bit. So we're gonna be looking at the numbers in the book and we're gonna be like, fuck, like, can I do this today? Can I really push myself this hard? And sometimes that's normal and that's okay, and it's okay to be pushing yourself through those periods of time. But a lot of the time it's it's a sign that your body's telling you no in some shape or form. So your body could just be like, nah, like I'm I'm not, I'm not able to get into this session today and perform the way that I need to perform. And that, that could simply be down to you being overreached and you needing in that deload. So that feeling of like, for like really just like feeling almost sick before the session kind of thing or sick even after the session. I see that a lot in clients and they're like, why am I feeling sick after the session Because you've worked up a lot of anxiety and stress and worry. And obviously the feelings of overreaching are there with you as well. Resting heart rate's elevated, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to understand what is going to prove the most beneficial in terms of getting you into a state of being maximally recovered is going to be pretty key. So yeah, those are some of the signs that we need a deload. Hopefully I've covered that well. I think I've discussed that question for about six minutes. So it should be one that is answered have a few questions on that that are side tangents, so I'll go into them as well. One of them being deloading when dieting. This is something that a lot of people struggle with because everyone sees dieting as this one tunnel vision. I must get lean. I must train hard. I must do this. I must do that. No one wants to back off when they're dieting. No one wants to back off. So who the hell wants to deload when we're dieting? Like no one really no one really wants to deload, it sucks, right, it's not fun, but it's essential, like, you've got to view a prep or diet phase as a long distance flight, or a long car journey, how the fuck are you going to get from London to Glasgow without filling up with fuel, it's an impossible, it's an impossible feat, so you've got to look at taking your body from London to Glasgow in an, in an analogy form, and you've got to fill up with fuel, so whether that's, Diet breaks, whether that's refeeds, whether that's deloads, reducing the fatigue that you're going to accumulate from going from London to Glasgow with your body is absolutely key. Otherwise, you will not get there. Bottom line, like you will get there, obviously, without doing doing deloads when you're dieting, but you'll get there in a lot worse of fashion than you would if you implemented deloads. So... Deloads when dieting, definitely do them. In terms of whether I take days off or train, I think I've covered this before, but personally, I would train just because I think (sighs) your sanity will be improved by training because a lot of the time, people can't just sit at home when they're dieting. They find it really, really difficult to sit at home. So for me, I would say that I would train I would reduce your intensity down, I would reduce your volume down, so one working set off each exercise and reduce your intensity also and see what that effect does. But most of the time, you'll see a positive effect with that. I think that you'll see a big, pretty significant reduction in fatigue and you'll see your ability to train throughout the rest of your mesocycles leading up into the show with a lot more efficiency It's just, it's frustrating because you don't want to do it. I know you don't want to do it. You know, if you're listening to this and you're dieting down, the last thing you want to do is be able to, like, take a deload. But it is necessary to get you towards the end goal. Some of my people, like some of my people in prep, I have given days off. But that is normally for the reason that we're seeing an accumulation of stresses on the joints, tendons, and ligaments. So they're incurring a few niggles and injuries that need to be sorted, and can only really be sorted, by taking efficient time off, and not training, and that normally is is just done by four days off, four days straight off, and then back into normal training, ramping things up again, so that's that, and my preferred approach for dieting is usually the, the deload sessions, if they can master them, my preferred approach for the off-season is the four days off, four days straight off, okay, so that's my general approach on deloading and i hope that's covered everything for you guys so next question is when to get sports massage so should we get this on an off day should we get this when the day before an off day the evening before an off day whatever now well, really depends on the type of the sports massage so if we're looking at a sports massage that's going to be pretty invasive and it's going to cause a lot of soreness then i would say it's almost pivotal to get that done as far away from the next training window as possible. For most bodybuilders that are just getting sports massage to keep on top of things, I think it would be silly for you to get sports massage and get someone to dig into you and kill you, because all you're doing there is creating another recovery bout. And trust me, I've seen plenty well not plenty but I've seen a good few sports massage therapists and a good few of them have done very minimal work and probably done their job and a good few of them have done a fuckload of work and buried me and like made me so sore made me more sore than I would be from a generic training session like they've dug in so much so deep that I can't recover from it and it and it really does ruin me for a good few days like I can't get in and Even if they work, so if they work on my scap, for example, on my scapula, like I can't grip anything for a pull, so I can't RDL properly. Then I can't press properly because your scapula and your your ability to retract your scapula is a pivotal point in most pressing movements. And then outside of that, I can't really train lower body properly because anything resting on my shoulders then again leads into my scapula. So I can't really back squat I can't really hack because it really hurts and it places pressure on the wrong areas, which is trying to recover. So I'd be really cautious when it comes to who you select and just making sure that you pick someone that's going to do their job well, do their job efficiently and not fuck you up. <laughs> because, yeah, you can get quite easily fucked up by a sports massage. So, yeah, just be just be cautious of that. All right. So. Next question is on an inguinal hernia. So I'm pretty sure that's how you say it, inguinal. So unfortunately, dude, to answer your question, you're going to have to consult with your doctor on that one. I can't really give much advice apart from listening to your doctor heavily. Now, the reason, obviously, I select questions, but the reason why I wanted to ask answer this one is partly because it's a question that I think people need to know that I can't cover too well. And that's important because our job as, you know, online coaches, for example, is not to treat or diagnose injuries or illnesses. Like, we can't really do that. It's not in our position. So, for us, we've really got to just say any sort of management protocols that we can put in. So, for example, a management protocol for an inguinal hernia would be reduce a reduction of loading on all exercises and reduce exertion. So you can't really exert with an or honey. So I'd imagine leg training is probably off the cards for a decent while. You said six weeks, so follow whatever your surgeon or doctor has said. And then maybe you could look towards some upper body work. I'm not sure whether BFR could be a good idea. Again, I can't say whether that's a good idea or not. I know that it would reduce loading, which is good. But I also know that it will place a little bit of pressure on... The nervous system with regards to obviously the the changes in blood flow through bfr so well not so much the nervous system but more so the the, uh, the blood flow will be changed so whether that will affect the hernia or not i'm not sure i don't think it will to be honest so something like bfr could be good just because you're going to be able to get inefficient work with minimal exertion and obviously target metabolic stress in a way to either produce a, a hypertrophic response or keep a hypertrophic response and keep tissue which is obviously the goal when you're in this phase of not being able to train efficiently so yeah i'm sorry to hear that dude but i'm sure you'll get better very very soon and it'll be fixed and you'll be back to normal so yeah don't stress i'm sure things will be okay very very soon all right so next question is my opinion on like why i've started training with like one to two work sets and when when have i been doing that from So my like approach on like one to two work sets, I've probably started doing that the very, very end of my, no, to be honest, actually, it was the start of math season out of my, excuse me, out of my 2017 contest prep. So that was when I started doing the one to two work sets. And the reason why I started training like that is because I knew that I'd learn to train harder. And this is a big thing, I think that when you can take a set to very close to muscular fail with very good accuracy and you can go for those reps, those three or four reps that most people would think that aren't there and you can grasp hold of them and do those reps then that's your calling point for like, okay, I can probably go to a lower volume approach because if you were trying to do three to four work sets of that intensity and that's the way you enjoy to train, you would not be able to recover bottom line. You would be in such a poor position from a nervous system perspective. You'd be very sympathetic dominant. You'd not be able to recover. You'd be probably getting sick a lot because your immune system would be giving up on you like a lot of things, a lot of issues you'd incur by training with that intensity are coupled with high volume training. So I think it's also pretty sensible for some advanced trainees to actually shift through cycles. So shift through periods of time where they train with lower volume and higher intensity, and then shift through a phase where they train with higher volume and slightly lower intensity, or at least intensity capped at a certain degree, because there is benefits of both. Like, there is benefits of high volume training in the sense that volume is a big precursor for hypertrophy. There's also benefits from higher intensity training. So realize that I don't just do one-to-do to work sets on everything. Like my arm training volume is very high. My side delt training volume is very high. These are not one-to-do work sets. If I was just doing one-to-work sets on my biceps, my triceps, they would not be growing, dude. Like they would just not be growing at all. So realize the body parts that you can do it on. For example, a lot of people could probably get away with doing it on their legs unless their legs are very stubborn and they have to work even harder for <laughs> their legs to grow. That's obviously a given. But in most, most situations, a lot of people can do one to two work sets and be absolutely fine given they are applying adequate intensity to them. It totally depends on your situation, your training age, and obviously your ability to perform those sets. So that that was two questions answered in one as well. So again, I'm, I read through these questions, guys. I don't just sort of like go for it. I read them through and I select the ones that obviously are appropriate and haven't been covered before, or at least I don't think they have. So yeah, that's my reasoning behind that, mate, and I hope that makes sense. And anyone that's got any more questions on sort of why I train in that way, obviously just ask like feel free to ask I don't have any problems with that at all but for the most part you know it's because it's the way I love to train and it's because I believe that intensity does show and if we're not training at an adequate intensity and we're doing a load of fucking fluff work volume shit I think that's not I personally think you're going to short shortchange your ability to gain maximal strength and as a result of that, you're going to have a mediocre physique for a long, long time because you've never taken your body to where it needs to be from a strength perspective. I think strength is important. I actually, I actually put a lot of weights in strength. I really do. And I think the stronger you can get, the better you can cross transfer that into volume phases, etc., etc. So, you know, whilst strength and hypertrophy maybe aren't as correlated as volume and hypertrophy, I think that they do, it does play a pretty pivotal role at some point especially with younger individuals um when they're not able to they're really like they're just not able to ever cap into their full strength potential they may be just doing always too much so yeah or not recovering enough next question is from nick and it's on my confidence with clients competing this year and whether i think they'll win now this is obviously one that's biased but i think i've got a lot of clients could do very well this year this year i think honestly putting it out there i think that i can take two people to worlds at least and that for me it would be the absolute dream is to be on a on a flight to new york going to worlds and having some clients with me that that ultimately is the goal like i want that to happen so I'm obviously going to put everything into that as I possibly can. So you know whatever that is, whatever I have to do to get those people on that plane and get them winning shows, I will do that. So yeah, I'm very, very confident. And ultimately, I think confidence rubs off. So there's a, different, there's a really big difference between blowing smoke up people's ass and telling them things that they really can't achieve to actually just being honest, giving them honest feedback that, they can take on board and that makes them want to work harder and maybe work smarter as well. And that's key as well. Like I think it's really, really, really key to give them a lot of things that they can do well and do consistently and give them the confidence that they are gonna perform, but they need to work for it. Like don't just give them like blow blowing smoke up their ass confidence because then they'll start to relax. It's funny how humans' minds work. Like when someone's told that they're doing fantastic and that they're gonna win and everything's all good. They might take their foot off the gas, and that's no good for anyone. You need their foot on the gas pretty much the whole prep. So, yes, I think I'm going to be a happy coach by the end of the year. That's for sure. Okay, so next question is, is it too young to be dedicating your entire life your entire life, to bodybuilding at age 16, 17? Uh, yes. Yes is the answer. Why is that my answer, especially coming from someone who's been in this for a while, like from a very young age? My answer to that is pretty simple, in the sense that when you're 16, 17, there's a lot going on in your life that you won't ever be able to enjoy again when you're 20 plus. Well, maybe when you're 20 plus, especially if you go to uni, but when you're 16, 17, like there's loads of cool things going on at school, within education, within your life that like you can have a really really good time with and you can't really enjoy all of that as much as you usually would when you've dedicated your entire life to eating out of tupperware and training consistently every single day obviously like you know you can be dedicated and you have a lot of fun but don't let that detract from your ability to enjoy those years when you're when you're younger like you know go out enjoy some time with friends enjoy like a pizza or something right because when you start tracking your nutrition you you no longer see a pizza as an enjoyable thing with friends and family you see it as an 800 calorie meal and that sucks like that sucks i would have probably always missed out on things like that if i'd been so clued up on calories when i was 16 17 when i was 16 17 i just had fun you know i didn't care if there was 800 calories in a pizza i just ate it with my friends cuz i wanted it and and that's really, really important to spend a lot of time with good people when you're young and have a lot of fun. Because you don't get to really relive that 16-17 period. Especially like, you know, when you're not really supposed to drink alcohol and things like that. Like that's fun. I miss I miss some of that to be fair. Was, I had a lot of fun nights out when I was younger. And I wouldn't change that for the world. I wouldn't change to be honest, I wouldn't change that for a, a year of consistent bodybuilding training. There's plenty of time for you to fit in bodybuilding training. It's very cool that you're so dedicated at a young age, but remind yourself that, you know, life can fly by like that. So don't give in on some things that you want to enjoy just as a result of, you know, trying to push bodybuilding. Because it could come to like, you know, let's say you reach 20 and you've done four years of consistent bodybuilding. And then you realize that maybe you haven't got the genetic potential for it, or it's not for you, or you get distracted by something else, and you realize that you've just kind of chucked away years that like when you were 16, 17, you could have been enjoying doing different things and you chucked it away just for bodybuilding. So my perspective, give it a thought process. Really think about whether you're doing the best thing for you. Um, and yeah, just don't, don't 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 put too much pressure on yourself to make a decision on that front. And don't just take this as advice from me, you know, someone who's enjoyed the years when he was 16, 17. After that, I don't didn't have any regrets just sort of going more all in on bodybuilding because obviously it brought me to where I am today. It brought me to like the business that I have. It almost definitely brought me to the relationship that I have. And it's done a whole lot of good for me in terms of my mental health, everything. Like so bodybuilding is just huge, huge, huge for me. So it's not a case of chucking it out. Do not chuck it out. No way. (laughs) No way. But think about whether it's important for you to do other things as well whilst you're that age. All right. So good books to read is the next question. So I read quite a few books when I was coming up as a PT. And I got advised by a guy that was mentoring me at the time to read some of these books. And one of them was how to make friends and influence people and oh it's how to win friends no it's how to make friends and influence people that book is amazing it treats it it really shows you how to treat people and how from the outside looking in treating people in a certain way will pay off so i would read that book i would also read the four hour work week i think that's really really good in terms of time efficiency and management not that i work four hours four hours a day jesus no way or four, four hours a week i definitely don't do that I don't wish I could either. I love working the amount that I work. It's why that when I have to manage my stress and do less, I'm like, no, but it's, uh, but it's important, like I said. So yes, those two books are really good in terms of just general reading. Other books, Jab, 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 Right Hook by Gary Vaynerchuk. Any of Gary's work is fantastic. His book, Jab, 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 Right Hook, very good on how to manage social media. It's probably, some of the things are a little bit outdated now because he's released a few new books, But that book, in a sense, teaches you how to, again, create business from sensible strategic decisions within your business, As apart from, sorry, instead of just like throwing out right hooks all the time. So essentially, the jabs, this, from the greatest perspective, as much as I'm not really looking to take on board clients at the moment, but this is a jab. So this is not a right hook. If I wanted to right hook in terms of a selling procedure, a right hook would be selling you something right now. So it'd be like, buy my jumper. This is obviously not my jumper, it's Jordan's. Buy this. i would be a right hook for Jordan. If I was to right hook you, it would be like, look look into my link below and sign up and do my application form and sign up. And that's a right hook. If you throw right hooks all the time, your, your right hand is going to get very tired. <laughs> and at some point, that will go wrong, like, you can't just throw right hooks, you have to jab to either have the opportunity to do a right hook, or you'll jab so many times with content that you won't even need to right hook, right hook is selling, like, I don't sell anymore, I just, I just jab, and when I'm jabbing, I'm pulling out content, more content, more content, more, more applicable stuff, more applications come through, more applications come through, and, you know, I'm at a point now where, I don't really want to take on board any more clients so I, I will keep jabbing because I want more people to sign up to the member site I want more people on there I want more people enjoying what I'm doing on that front so I will keep jabbing for those things but I'm not going to jab for clients necessarily, or I'm definitely not going to write hook for them because I want to focus on the people that I've got and give them an incredibly good quality of service okay so that's is a long-winded answer to some great books. Another great book is The Muscle and Strength Pyramids. So they're from Team 3DMJ. Again, they're really, really good. Um, Those will most help, most likely help any upcoming coach. Cliff Wilson and Peter Fitchin's new book as well is very good. They just released a podcast with Vicky Masita doing sort of talking through the book and what is happening with that book as well. I've read some bits of it. I haven't read a lot of it yet, but it's very good from what I've read so far. Next question is highly branched cyclic dextrin during work. So not during workouts, during work. So Joinald has a really busy job. He's on his feet a lot. And I'm guessing his ability to get in food is limited. So he's asking whether he should drink highly branched cyclic dextrin during work. My perspective on this is probably no. Because if you think about it, like, how many of your carbohydrates do you really want to get from highly cyclodextrin? Being that it's a very very simple carb, it's going to be digested very very quick, and obviously predominant like source of that is, is sugar based. You know, so I would say it was dextrose. So I would say that I would prefer you to have something like a liquid meal in the form of oats blended with whey and fruit. And have that on you during work if you can drink that. So keep it somewhere like, you know, in a fridge or side of the work desk or whatever, like during work. And then halfway through work, you know, you could just sip on that if you don't get time to have a meal. You know, obviously we want to ideally elevate MPS every four hours or so. So that meal will also elevate MPS. But having Holly Brand Cyclic Dextrin just because you're walking around a lot is... Probably not a good idea, I'm afraid. So I wouldn't do that, personally. I mean, when I was back in the day, I was working at Sainsbury's. I did the trolleys. I, have like, pushed the trolleys. And I also worked on the tills. And I used to, like, put mass-gaining shakes in the cupboards and go and drink them. And it was awful, 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 awful. My digestion was, my digestion was fucking awful. It was so bad. So bad. Like, I got legit touch wood i haven't like had them ever before really but after that but my stomach cramps were so bad it was probably because i was consuming like 300 grams of protein a day and the mass shakes just weren't sit no wonder they weren't sitting well because i had two scoops of mass gainer which was like 800 calories and i mixed it with bloody gold top milk gold top milk per 100 400 per mils is just crazy high calories and so much fat and i was just feeling awful like I don't think I've ever felt so bad ever and I've had some time periods of feeling bad that's for sure so I felt wank to be quite frank so well, that rhymed so yeah I wouldn't recommend doing the mass gainer approach that's for sure highly branched cyclic dextrin is probably better than the mass gaining approach but nevertheless my perspective is that it's probably not a great idea to do the highly branched cyclic dextrin during work just my perspective so yeah think about the oats and the whey maybe a bit of a better option next question so competing against clients will i do it what's my opinions on it ah see this is difficult i don't want to compete against clients if i'm honest because i care about my clients a lot and if i go against clients and i beat them i'll feel really bad i'll feel really bad and it and it will take away from my enjoyment of winning to be honest so I wouldn't mind competing against clients in a British final. So if in 2020, you know, I turn up at the British and I've got a few clients there with me and I've got a couple in the same class, fine. Or I've got a couple in other classes, fine. That'll probably happen, to be honest. It'll probably happen and I've had it happen before. So I'll probably have, have it happen again. So with that being said, obviously, I'm going to cap my numbers very low next year, to be honest, very low just to make sure i can focus on my own prep so if you're if you're wanting coaching for a contest prep for next year you better get in you know a a a precursor of an application pretty soon because i'm really going to cap my numbers and i've already got a lot of people that are signed up now that are going to do 2020 preps that will be my client base for 2020 and anyone else that wants to come on board like if you message me in november it's probably going to be a no so if you really want to work with me best chances is starting now um, or starting in the near future and working towards 2020 because I'm going to literally be really capping my numbers when it comes to 2020 and preps all right so but yeah competing against clients I would uh, I would not like it but it's something that's probably going to have to be done at the British and obviously my perspective on that is I Like I wouldn't ever, ever want a client not showing up at their best. So I would give my absolute all to create a client that was on stage in their absolute best condition. I wouldn't try and fucking hamper with their progress if I thought they were better than me. Basically, if someone's better than me, as and someone's a better bodybuilder than me, I'm gonna take my hat off and I'm gonna say, bloody well done, well done, my friend, because I know how hard I work, I know how many boxes I tick, and if someone's got either a better work ethic than me, Jesus, like that would be cool, um, I know very few very few people that I think have got a better work ethic than me, not being cocky but I just think that's the way and I know my work ethic can improve by the way, I know that I can always get better and better and better but you know I don't know many people my age that work, that's working as hard as me both in a business perspective and a training perspective so I'd say well done, and I'd also take into account that maybe they just had been a better genetics than me. But again, I don't think I've been dealt a bad card with genetics, if I'm honest. I think my genetics are okay for the sport. I don't think they're bad at all. So, yeah, few considerations there for in terms of competing against clients. But that's my general thoughts. Not the most enjoyable thing in the world. takes away from sometimes the enjoyment of my own process as well. All right, so... But during the prep, it's amazing because you're prepping together essentially, checking each week, and you're like both feeling each other's pain to a degree, which is really really nice. Like I love that's not pain really, it's just feeling each other's emotions. Sounds really really sense sexual that feeling each other's emotions, yeah, buddy. So forty eight ten, we have forty eight ten. So boosting appetite during gaining. Thanks for the question again, bud. So, always listening in. I really appreciate it, Carl. So, I would say that the best thing that I've found is stress reduction. So, if we can manage our stress, I think our appetite can stay really, really good. So, I've noticed a direct correlation with stressful periods of time. Every single time, if stress is high, my appetite, rock bottom. Rock bottom, like, really, really struggling to eat food um so what i would say for you mate is manage your stress and your sleep as much as possible so get really 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 efficient sleep get in bed at a nice time wake at a nice time get sunlight exposure in the morning etc etc do all your things to manage stress and your appetite should follow outside of that keeping in some cv work i think is pretty integral again so we can influence things like resting heart rate we can keep our cardiovascular system working in an effective manner and then if we keep our our, our HR in a good position we can then influence appetite because we know how much appetite is relevant to our nervous system and if we can spend more time in the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system we can spend more time with an adequate adequate appetite we know that being in the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system we're going to spend more time in a stressed out situation or stressed out space and our then ability to eat our food is compromised and also digest our food is compromised. So that's my sort of cliff notes on boosting appetite. It really is a case of appropriate stress management, some CV work, really good food options as well. So not eating like tons of high volume foods, eating foods that really sit well with you, they digest well. And I think that's probably the best thing that you can possibly do in terms of affecting, positively affecting appetite. Yes, that's pretty much it for that one. Not ramble too much on that one Carl so yeah hope hopefully that answered your question. Diet breaks so I don't think I have discussed this before but sorry sorry if I have. So diet breaks are for me a one to two week period at maintenance or slightly above maintenance perceived. Obviously we can never like exactly predict maintenance but I'm pretty good at it in terms of where I take calories. The increase of calories in a diet break come from carbohydrates. We keep fats normally baseline, normal diet numbers, and we keep protein normal diet numbers usually. I normally just increase carbs. We don't usually see a change in cardio or steps. I usually keep them both the same. Sometimes I drop them a little bit depending on how high they are, but usually I would just raise food. Reason being is food, especially carbohydrates, is probably one of the most effective tools in terms of removing diet fatigue. So the goal of the diet break is to remove diet fatigue. So that in turn answers the question as to when we should do one, when diet fatigue is pretty high. So usually anywhere between 10 and 12 weeks of being in a deficit, if someone's got the time for a diet break, I'll put one in. If someone has not got the time for a diet break, they're not doing one. Simple as. So for me, I usually do one amongst most people that I've given enough time. And if I think they need a little more or they're not in a position to take a diet break, they don't do it. Training during a diet break. I mean, ideally you'd have someone do a, a lower volume week and a deload week. But a lot of the time asking someone for to do that mentally, it's already mentally enough of a difficult procedure to diet break. So asking them to diet break and deload is sometimes I think actually a negative because well, we what is it? It's a net negative. Why is it a net negative? Is because we're causing so much stress for the individual by telling them to do something that's causing them to back off, dieting and back off training. That their head just explodes and they think, "What the fuck? Like I can't do this." And they feel like they put it as an impossibility in their head, and that sucks for someone who's trying to deal with stress in the diet in diet diet um diet position. When the whole goal of the diet break is to remove stress, we add stress. That's <laughs> not good, is it? So, yeah, I would say that diet break, calories up to a perceived maintenance, primarily through carbs. When you can fit it in, 10 to 12 weeks of dieting potentially. After that, you'll break up the deficit, you'll reduce diet fatigue, and you'll give them more ammunition to make more progress. You'll also potentially, especially if it's closer to two weeks, you'll slow down or... Prevent some of the metabolic adaptations that are going to occur whilst dieting. So we can enhance our ability to keep metabolic function in a diet phase in an effective manner. And eke out some more progression when it comes to fat loss later on. Makes sense? Okay. So next question is who would I want to be sponsored by? To be honest, I don't think I'd want to be sponsored by anyone but who I'm sponsored by. The reason being is that they look after me very, very well. If I had to be sponsored by someone else, it would be a brand and a product or a business or a person that I absolutely fucking love and that I believe in a lot. And I think that's pretty obvious, to be honest. If if you can make sense of that, it's pretty obvious who I'd go for in terms of like brand, product, people, business. I'd support something that I believe in. I'd support something that suits me and matches me as a personality, and that's pretty key. You wouldn't get someone who doesn't match with a business to partner up with them. It just doesn't make sense. It would have to fit well. And I know a few things that would fit well with me personally. So whether or not that happens in the future, maybe it does. I know that I spoke to one of the Vibram people at the weekend. And we were speaking about potential partnership in the future. Don't know whether that will happen. God knows. Maybe you shouldn't even say anything about it. But fuck it, YOLO. If you wear Vibrams, maybe we should start a poll for me to be sponsored by them. But I've already bought through, yeah, two pairs of their shoes. So don't know what I'll do with any more free pairs. Just it would just primarily be to help you guys if I got a sponsorship. Um, so it'd be to like give you a discount code. But a few big influencers have bought them already. So. Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. Should have gotten this beforehand. But yeah, I know TM has bought some. And I know Bridgie, Bridgman has bought some as well. So, bloody hell. Everyone's getting them now. The Vibram hype. So, uh, I know Luke Muscle Mentor's got some as well. He, he, he fell for them. He fell, fell right into the bucket of the Vibrams. So, yeah, I know that everyone's getting on them. Everyone's going to be getting odd looks whilst they're walking down the street, which is fantastic. So, yeah. I love them for cardio as well. Love them for walking. They just feel so good. So... George I'm going to take your question dude this might be the last question but actually I'm going to answer one more after this so yeah George's question is unique tips for first time competitors okay when you shave when you shave all your body hair you've done this before George So it's not a problem for you but for other people that are listening this is a unique tip do not use Veet and shave at the same time. Because if you use Veet and shave at the same time, you'll most likely burn your skin. So I burnt, my first ever show, I burnt my underarms. Funny story, because I shaved and then I Veeted them. And then I found like there was a few hairs left. So I shaved again because my skin was irritated by the Veet cream. I literally like fucked my, un- my armpits up so badly that when I hit a front double bicep, it felt like someone was, like, stabbing me with a very sharp knife in my armpit. So it wasn't fun at all. My other tip is that make sure that when you're in the lead-up to your show and you're travelling and you're staying at hotels or friends' houses or whatever, you keep absolutely everything the same as you possibly can. So with that, I mean keeping your cups that you drink water out of the same keeping your meals that you have at the same times the same like do not change anything the biggest mistake that i see is people go and they travel and they change something they do something different they manipulate a variable that they're not imagining to manipulate and it fucks things up so like you know last time i was prepping people last year and peaking people I remember a client of mine called James Hilton he loaded on and this is just out of his own choice this was not his fault it's not my fault well probably my fault again for maybe not saying to keep everything the same but I probably did so it was maybe both of our faults but he loaded for one of his shows on like you know crumpets and he was eating them in his prep fine but small amounts of them but then he loaded on like quite a few because he had to have a lot of carbs. So he loaded on a lot of crumpets and the sodium in the crumpets, because obviously it's a bread-based product, worked up massively and he didn't carbohydrate spill. He sodium spilled, but with not enough water. So if you have too much sodium and you don't have enough water, the likelihood of you being able to get all the carbohydrates that you're having alongside the sodium, which is pulling the carbohydrate intramuscular, the likelihood of you getting all of that intramuscular is low. So some of that will go extracellular. And, like, it's, what I've seen is, like, especially with people that are very sensitive and very lean, they seem to sodium spill a little easier than some other people when sodium spill is just not noticeable. But, you know, if you go out for a meal, even in your off-season... Go out for a meal that's really sodium dense. The next day, you'll walk up, wake up puffier and waterier, like waterier. That's not even a word. So yeah, like, be cautious. Keep everything the same. You know, I said it, I said it before. But when I went to like the UKDFBA finals, I took my microwave with me. I took my air fryer with me. I took bloody everything with me because I knew I wanted to stay as on track as I possibly could. Cool. So I am gonna take. Yeah, I'm going to take one or two more questions. So, most beneficial item under £100 that I've bought in the last 12 months. So, really really interesting one because I'm not sure what to really answer it with because I don't buy a lot. So, I haven't really bought much in the last 12 months that was under £100 that I feel is massively beneficial. So, I'm actually going to say that it wasn't something I bought. But it was something that came into my life that was the best, probably the one of the best things that's happened in the last twelve months. And that's uh, as emotional as it is. It's probably Danny. Like that's not a product. <laughs> it's not a purchasable item. Um, but it is something that's most definitely changed my life in a very, very positive way. The reason being is that having someone that has a very good critical second eye on everything that you're doing and can sort of like relate to you very very much on like loads of levels in the sense that we do the same thing for a living we do the same thing for a hobby and you know she's essentially like called me out on a few things that that definitely like I need to work on you know like my stress management like the amount that I work like the amount that I chill out in the evenings like to be honest if it wasn't for her I would not ever chill out bottom line like, bottom line, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't, if it was just me, either living on my own, or even living with my dad, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't relax, I just wouldn't relax, and me, me, me and Jack were having a conversation about this, after body power, he would just, he just messaged me, and said, you know, voice to me, and said, like, I'm, I'm just screwed, man, I'm just, like, so tired, so, so tired, and I was like, well, yeah, I'm the same, man, but, you know, remember how important it is to, you know, back off, and Sometimes take some time off and sometimes have those days where you're quieter. And, you know, Jack is good at that. You know, he does have some days where he's a bit quieter with check ins and things like that, which is good. But it's so easy. And I can, you know, as I'm watching him grow, I can see it starting to get to basically where I was at and where I don't want to be again, where I'm not taking any days off ever. And I'm not like every day is a check in day kind of thing, which I love. But at the same time, it becomes very very difficult very very difficult at some points so i need to make more of those days where you know danny's called me out on it and said you know you need to sometimes have those days where you know you're either doing like small things like programming or you have a day for the podcast you know things like that i i used to have these you know when i was doing a little less so this is not to say that like you know from from a numbers perspective I'm definitely not up there with some of the best, some of the top UK coaches, to be honest. But that's because my service is, you know, to give you an example, like when you check in with me, my client videos are anywhere between 10 and 15 minutes long. So I have to watch a 10 and 15 minute update video. I have to look through their sheets. I have to look through their training protocols. Then I reply with a 10 to 15 minute feedback video. So every client check-in takes me about 45 to 50 minutes. Bottom line. Now I know people that, check in with just a very very short update and I could probably do I could probably do double the amount of clients I have right now if I did that sort of very short update process uh, but I again I know people that handle more numbers than me that are doing a similar similar service and my my my, my head just shakes I'm like how do you even do that how, how do you even operate how do you even like control your nervous system with that like I'd just be wrecked. so the more people that I speak to that You know, we're doing well in the industry and managing things. I think it comes down to, you know, realistically, definitely putting a cap on your services, which I do and I have done now, and I will enforce that and not getting carried away with the excitement of being able to coach every single person on the planet because it's not possible, unfortunately. It really isn't. And instead, like what I'm doing now is if people apply, they're told there is maybe some degree of waiting, they're either if there is an opportunity or a space opens up, someone's leaves leaves my services, then a spot opens up. I respond to the application. They come into the process and we get going. Um, and obviously, if they're not if they're not ready, then we don't do that, and you know we don't move forwards. And I take on board someone else. And that's realistically the way that I work. But yeah, I've rambled on this for a little bit of a time period now. But that's essentially the best thing. The really best thing is is definitely having someone in my life that that can tell me when to to back off, because obviously, like my mum used to say it, my mum used to say it to me, like, you know, you never have a day off AJ, and I always used to say it, but I love it, I love it, I love it, <laughs> that's what I was like for years, 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 I'm still like it, I still like it now, still like it now, still like it now, it just, it's difficult, very, very difficult, when you love something so much, you want to do so much of it, and you don't realise that you're, you know, sometimes you're giving yourself too much shit, <laughs> to handle, and, it gets on top of you before you know it, so, Yeah, guys, remember that that's the biggest take home from this week's episode is like, remember that we can love things. We can be passionate about things, but don't let it take away from putting you first a lot of the time. If that means saying no to some people, that means backing down on some things has to be done. You know, don't just be a yes man all the time or a yes girl. Be be sometimes a no person. Have to be a no person sometimes. Okay, so I'm going to leave this episode here and i hope everyone's all good i hope you're all well and as always please do share this on your story if you've listened take a screenshot if you've listened on youtube as always on youtube i think the last one got very close to a thousand 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 views yeah but not a thousand likes a hundred likes so if i can get a hundred likes the thing is it gets a thousand views Please, can I get a 1,000 th- likes? <laughs> but can I get a 100 likes? If I could get 100 likes, that would be made me very happy. And, uh, yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the the pig in the background, like right down here. There it is. That me and Danny bought <laughs> from the service station <laughs> the other day. So, yeah, there's a pig there. Anyway, right, I'm going to leave this here, guys. hope you're all good. Any questions off the back of these questions, please let me know. As always, really appreciate the support on these, and I will be chatting to you guys next week. All right, see you in a bit.